Welcome to the Dietitian Rehab Podcast, where we not only challenge and inspire dietitians to think outside the traditional dogmatic education, training, and attitudes for a mind wide open, but also to challenge anyone to think differently about their own health. We'll talk all things food, health, and nutrition related as we explore points of view, evidence, and strategies for better health that will allow you a fuller understanding of the hot topics that everybody's talking and asking about. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Doug Cook, and today we have none other than Terry Walls, who many of you probably have heard of. Dr. Terry Walls is an Institute for Functional Medicine certified practitioner and a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa, where she conducts clinical trials. In 2018, she was awarded the Institute for Functional Medicine's Linus Pauling Award for her contributions in research, clinical care, and patient advocacy. She is also a patient with secondary progressive multiple sclerosis, which confined her to a tilt-reclined wheelchair for four years. Dr. Walls restored her health using a diet and lifestyle program she designed specifically for her brain and now pedals her bike to work every day, also known as the Walls Protocol. She is, therefore, the author of the Walls Protocol, a radical new way to treat all autoimmune conditions using paleo principles. So let's get to the show. Welcome to the show, Dr. Walls. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm really excited because I'm sure a lot of listeners know who you are and all the great, amazing work you've done, um, not just with your own um, personal health journey, but uh, autoimmunity and and other things uh, that we'll be talking about. So just to help uh, orient the audience to you and and who you are and your work, I'm just going to let everyone know that you are a medical doctor, a clinical professor an author of over 60 peer-reviewed publications, which is impressive, a patient with a chronic progressive disease, which we'll talk about relapsing, remitting multiple sclerosis, and of course, are the creator of the well-known Walls Protocol, which we'll talk about a little bit in a few minutes. But before we do that, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little about yourself. I sure. guess I'm thinking your your background, your personal health journey, your experience with traditional approaches to disease, and how you got to the place where you are now using treatments that aren't wouldn't be considered part of traditional conventional medicine, which yeah. I'm excited to talk about as being a clinical dietitian uh, working in a hospital. Yes, yes, yes. So I'm, I'm an internal medicine doc at the University of Iowa. And a very traditional doc, believing in the latest science and the best drugs. But God has a mysterious way about teaching us. In 2000, I developed weakness in my left leg, was ultimately diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And I decided I wanted to treat my disease very aggressively. So I did some research, found the best people in the center, in the country, went to that center, took the newest drugs, and went steadily downhill. Two years into this, my physicians told me about the work of Lauren Cardain. I read his books, his papers, and after 20 years of being a low-fat vegetarian, I decided to go back to eating meat. I gave up all grain, all legumes, all dairy, but I continued to decline. The next year, I needed a tilt-recline wheelchair. I took even more aggressive drugs, and then I went back to reading the basic science And I developed this theory that mitochondria were what drives disability and MS. 
and would ultimately devise a supplement protocol to support my mitochondria. And that was helpful in that it slowed the decline, and it was slightly helpful for the fatigue. In the summer of 07, I discovered the Institute for Functional Medicine. I took their course on neuroprotection, and I had a longer list of supplements. Then I had a really big aha moment, like what if I redesigned my paleo diet in a very specific way to stress the things I was taking in, in supplement form? So again, that was several more months of research. And I start this new way of eating in December 26, 2007. Now, at that point, I'm beginning to have brain fog. I've had 27 years of worsening electrical face pain due to trigeminal neuralgia. And I'm so weak, I cannot sit up in a regular chair. That's where I'm starting from. Three months into this new way of eating, my pain is gone. My brain fog is gone my fatigue is markedly reduced. And my physical therapist says, Terry, you're getting stronger. And he advances my exercises. Wow. And that's really a, a huge, huge deal. Mm -hmm. And I'm beginning to walk. Six months into this, I get on my bike for the first time in six years, and I bike around the block. My wife's crying, my kids are crying, I'm crying. And then at at 12 months, my wife finds an 18.5-mile bike ride, and we sign up as a family. And to my amazement, I'm able to do the whole 18.5-mile bike ride. So this, this really changes how I think about disease and health. It changes the way I practice medicine, and it will ultimately change the type of research that I do. Yeah, this is amazing. And I think people will be who don't know you or your work or maybe just learning for the first time are just going to be mind blown about this. And I think everyone would be regardless. So I'm just wondering if you could kind of just review very briefly, just kind of describe what's happening with relapsing, remitting MS. Sure. So the immune cells attack the brain, appear to damage the myelin causing an acute inflammation in the brain. You see that on the MRI. And it causes the signals between the brain and the body to not get transmitted very well. And so you have acute weakness or discoordination or acute pain problems or acute vision problems that typically over a period of a couple months gradually improve. So you have these episodes of worsening that's called a relapse episodes of improvement, that's called a remission. But over time, over 10 years, there's fewer relapses, but there's this slow deterioration of function. And within 10 years of diagnosis, half of everyone diagnosed with MS is unable to work due to severe fatigue. A third can't walk and need a walker or a wheelchair. Cognitive decline, early dementia is very, very common. Yeah, it's a hugely complex manifestation or presentation for sure. So when I've taught kind of introductory brain health nutrition, I've used the analogy, and I don't know if this makes sense, you can let me know, that for people to understand the neuron or the brain cell and the myelin, I, I likened it to a, an extension cord. So you've got the wire in the middle running down the cord with this plastic coating around it, which is kind of like, to me, the myelin and the nerve that's inside. Does that make sense? 
Oh, it's, it's a very good analogy. Very yeah, good. and so the the plastic coating is is breaking down. The immune cells are attacking attacking it, and you need that for. We all need that for proper nerve impulse control. And so, as you're saying on MRI, this is something that's measurable. It's verifi- verifiable. You can see this happening, this breakdown. So, just to go back quickly, um, for people who don't know, Lauren Cordain is kind of the, the father, I guess, of the yeah, paleo. diet, if you will, diet, if you will, which is really getting rid of those things that are kind of in our recent diet. And I know there's a lot of controversy around it with legumes and dairy and grains. The idea of eliminating those would, are, is tantamount to like, you know malnutrition and that kind of thing, which is, of course is silly because as I always say, there's no such thing as an essential food, but there are essential nutrients. So I'm just wondering what was the, what do you think might've been the connection with the low fat vegetarian diet well, and its role in this? So for me, we now know that I have a severe gluten sensitivity. If I have any gluten in six to 24 hours, my sensation on my face is abnormal and the electrical face pains begin. And if I have dairy or eggs, the same will happen. I have the genes that put me at risk for developing a severe reaction to gluten. So I have DQ2 and DQ8. Mm-hmm. And so I probably had gotten sensitized, had had gluten sensitivity, and hadn't realized that. And I'd been eating you know, bread and pasta and loved making homemade cheese. And it turns out that those foods are particularly inflammatory for me. Mm-hmm. You know, and I probably also was relatively low in B12. I, I've also have done some other genetic investigations and see that I have a number of variations of how my body handles B12. So I have a much, much higher biologic need for B12 than the average person. That's a piece that we didn't have probably as recently as 10 years ago. So, you know, we have this idea that, you know, there's a one nutrient requirements are kind of, you know, the same across the board, but we for sure know that that's not the case now and that there are these genetic differences, these SNPs, these so-called SNPs. And if you're doing low fat, you got to get your calories from somewhere. So most commonly people are going to be eating a lot of wheat-based foods on a lower fat vegetarian diet. So that's, that's very, very interesting. So it's, it is for me, and it's, it's obvious that good nutrition is crucial for health and it's pretty much understood by most, but I, you know, in my experience working in mental health uh, and addictions where I currently still work in, at a hospital here in Toronto is that people don't really think about the brain as an organ. They think, they know that drugging is good for your heart or, you know, vitamin D or calcium is good for your bones, but they don't really think about the brain as being an organ or the nervous system and that nutrition has a big impact on mm-hmm. that. Is that would be your experience as well? Yeah, you know, we are so naive. Physicians historically have not thought that nutrition was that important. They don't take care of themselves nutritionally, and they're uh, typically not taking care of their patients nutritionally either. Yeah, and the interesting thing to me is that, you know, we are biological beings, this body that we have, and, you know, it's made from the elements that we get from food. So it's I think there's been... Historically, if you look at the role of nutrition in preventing deficiencies, we kind of think that if someone's not walking around with scurvy or pellagra, B3 deficiency, that nutrition's done its job, I guess, and really they can't do much more than that. You know, when I teach my uh, patients at the VA, 
there's a lot of farmers and they understand that if they wanted to raise a champion animal, they would pay tremendous attention to the rations fed to that animal. Uh, and so when I explain that metaphor, like, okay, if you want champion health, we have to pay immense attention to your nutrition as well. And that's when the big light bulb goes off, like, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I guess I um, just would hope that people kind of grasped it more. So I'm curious to know what your what your peers, your medical, your doctor peers, what they thought of all this and what, what can they say in, in light of you getting out of a wheelchair 12 months later and then on to doing a bike ride? Well, you know, back in 2008, when I get transformed, and now I'm talking to my patients about their diet and less and less about drugs, my partners were very uneasy. They complained, had to go meet with the chief of staff and explain what I was doing. Now, fortunately, I'd brought with me my scientific papers and at a high level talked about nutrition. He became hugely supportive. Although, you know, people were, were very upset because they kept telling me I was using the same diet for every condition. You just can't do that. And I'd respond like, well, we all have mitochondria. We all have myelin. We all have brain cells. I'm just having, having people eat for their mitochondria and their brain cells and monitoring their blood pressure and blood sugar so they don't become over-medicated. Now, 12 years later, and, you know, I, I've published many more research studies. I've been lecturing all over the university, all over the country and the world. And now my clinical colleagues here at the University of Iowa are saying, we get it, Terry. You are so right. It is all about nutrition. And a nutrient-dense diet will fix a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And so, the, as you say, the proof's in the pudding. So, And are people picking up the kind of the evidence and running with it? Or are you kind of a lone wolf, yeah. if you will? Well, we've made lots more progress. So, I am having more partners, basic science partners, who are helping to analyze the frozen biospecimens. I've had, next week I'll be meeting with clinicians from another department that want to do a dietary intervention to assess the chronic pain issue in their specialty. So it's happening you know, here at, at the university, both in the clinical area and in the research area, people are reaching out to me and wanting me to collaborate with them uh, on their research teams. So that's happening here. And then at the national and international level, the MS Society began in response to my book coming out in 2014. They made uh, diet and lifestyle a research priority. And they've been putting money into some early pilot studies. They funded us with a million-dollar grant. And so really nice things are happening there. The National Institutes for Health was not funding any dietary food-based intervention studies back in 2010, but now they are, in fact, funding diet and lifestyle and health coaching, health behavior studies. So you know, really very exciting things, in fact, are happening. Yeah, and it's important for people to realize that there's going to be different response rates for different people based on their unique makeup and other mm -hmm. things are going on. So no one's making any claims that it's going to be a panacea or a cure-all, but you can't have the best biological or physiological response to any kind of treatment, whether it's some kind of medical intervention or, or a drug 
without kind of fortifying the underlying biology. I guess that's how I kind of think of it. Yeah. So it goes hand in hand. So if it's okay, I'd like to kind of just step back a tiny bit. So you, you, when you started talking about the steps that you took, it was to nourish your myelin and to basically nourish and take care of your mitochondria. So you have a great TED talk called Minding Your Mitochondria. And for people who, because there's a mix of people that follow me, there's dietitians, other health professionals in the public. So for those who don't remember their high school biology, the mitochondria, I guess, the way I think of it is if you had a, I don't know, an electric car, the mitochondria is like the battery. So it's the powerhouse. It's responsible for taking the energy that we get from digesting, breaking down food to create ATP, which is like this master energy molecule, et cetera. And I guess I'm wondering if you drew parallels or if there are parallels between a, a known genetic disease, mitochondrial dysfunction or mitochondrial disease, and what you did in terms of fortifying or nourishing your mitochondria. Because I think you focus on like some very well-known yeah. nutrients that the mitochondria needs to be its best. You know, what is interesting, I've had some pediatric physicians who are expert at treating mitochondrial dysfunctions. When they've come to the University of Iowa to give their grand rounds and lecture, have asked to meet with me because they're in their patient population, they have people coming in with my purple book, My Mitochondria, or the WALS protocol. And these families are telling, reporting that their children do much better implementing my protocol than they did with the mitochondrial physicians experts plans. And that's because, you know, I was designing my whole program around improving the efficiency of the mitochondria. And of course, I'm having to look up these genetic pediatric disorders for mitochondrial dysfunction. And I just find that very, very interesting. Yeah. And so I think when uh, I remember I used to work in a dialysis unit and I know mitochondrial dysfunction disease can be a contributing factor to kidney disease. And at the time, like I remember looking into it, there was uh, potential supplements like coenzyme Q10, lipoic acid, carnitine and creatine, which can help support mitochondrial function. I know yeah. a lot of them are notoriously poorly absorbed. And I know there's now formulas out there, these things like liposomal products that are encapsulated in these little fats that should make it easier to go through the cell membrane. So did any of these, it sounded like well, some of them did know, help I, you in the beginning. Right. I used all of those. And, and what I discovered was my fatigue was less when I used those, but I you know, was still declining. Mm -hmm. And as much as I love the paleo diet, I still declined on the paleo diet. And as much as I love functional medicine, you know, I, I was sort of flat on the functional medicine. But when I redesigned my food based on what I had learned from functional medicine and, you know, the basic science and the mitochondrial support, that's when the magic happened in surprising speed. I think the magic is in the food. The food is much more complicated than supplements, than individual nutrients. And that when we eat the food, we probably get these nutrients in the biologic ratios that our biology would expect. And we get thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of other related compounds that are part of that food complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you definitely noticed there was more bang for your buck and you got way more It was dramatic. Benefit. 
you know, in three months, I went from being unable to sit up to being pain-free and beginning to walk with my walking sticks. That is just like phenomenal. Yeah, it's unheard of. So when you th- we talk about food, because it's part of your protocol, and people, are, I would encourage people to download the, the cheat sheet from your website. Yes. Um, you have, I guess, there's two, four, six, at least like eight categories of foods that you recommend that anybody can pick up while they're yeah. waiting for your book to be delivered, because it would be strongly recommended for that. Can you just kind of go through those foods and why they're recommended? Yeah. So I want people to have lots of basically non-starchy vegetables, the greens for the carotenoids, the vitamin K2. Actually, it'll be vitamin K1, but your bacteria will metabolize it to vitamin K2. You'll have sulfur-rich vegetables in the cabbage, onion, mushroom family. Those things really boost your intracellular glutathione, a antioxidant. It's a compound that really protects the cells and brain cells very effectively. And then we're looking for things that are deeply pigmented, like beets, carrots, berries. We have hundreds of studies that show us the more color that you eat, particularly blue, purple, black, the lower the rates of cognitive decline, of dementia, of mental health problems, of cancers, diabetes, obesity. So for all those reasons, I'm wanting more color. And then protein. And my preference is meat. But I do have a guide for people who are vegetarian or vegan for their spiritual beliefs. And I want them to have organ meat once a week. So liver once a week. I also encourage oysters, clams, mussels. In fact, we're having a bunch of clams tonight. Seaweed because of the trace minerals. We talk about fermented vegetables, things like sauerkraut, kimchi, for the helpful lactobacillus species that are so helpful to our gut. And then... You know, my brain is 60 to 70% fat. My myelin is fat, which depends on omega-3 fats, omega-6 fats, and cholesterol. So in fact, it's really important to have plenty of omega-3 and omega-6 fat, and at least some cholesterol in your diet, so you can make the myelin. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it's mostly fat, as you say, and it's both saturated fats that the body can make and then cholesterol for sure. Anything else in the leafy greens that you can speculate? I'm just wondering about lutein, because what I found interesting about lutein... Yeah, go ahead. Lutein, zeaxanthin are very important, and probably all these carotenoids. We should remember that, what, we share 98% of the same DNA that our primates, the chimpanzees, and our ancestral heritage for millions of years, we're very closely aligned with primates and our diet was primarily green leafy plants. Our microbiome over those millions of generations helped metabolize those green leafy plants to make uh, run the chemistry of life. We began eating meat and we grew larger brains. So I, I think meat is a very important part of our diet. But I think greens are a hugely important part of our diet. We know if our diet is insufficient in greens, we're much more likely to have early macular degeneration, severe retinal problems, and severe visual problems. And the eyes are closely, closely related to brains. I mean, I think greens are a vital brain nutrient. 
Yeah, and the reason I bring up lutein, I you know what I've read is you know it doesn't represent a lot of the total carotenes or carotenoids in the diet. It's like sixteen percent. Yet they make up will if it's in the diet up to seventy seven percent of the carotenoids in the brain. Like the brain loves to concentrate lutein and zeaxanthine in its oh. tissues, and that from a health point of eye health point of view, of course, there's the vision aspect. But they really are like extensions. Uh, like you think the optical nerve is an extension of the brain. So the pigment density, the amount of lutein in the back of your eye correlates as a validated biomarker with the amount of lutein in your brain. So if you go to the optometrist and you've got a good macular pigment density, your brain is is good to go in that regard. So I just wondered if that just, I'm sure well, at some level is helping it out. This will be an interesting observation. When I began to recover, I had this tremendous craving for greens. I was eating huge amounts of kale, raw and cooked greens. And I've become well enough that I can travel, go to lectures, present papers around the country. And what I discover is, you know, when I'm on the road, I can't eat the volume of greens that I'm used to eating. And 36 hours into that, my mental clarity and energy sharply decline. Wow. And so it takes me about four years before I am not as sensitive to drops in my greens. Up until then, I was probably having six cups of greens pretty consistently every day. It's a lot. It's so a lot it's, of greens. It's a lot of greens, but I'm with you. I love the greens for sure. And another thing that I, I don't know if you came across this is there was a study maybe a year and a half ago where leafy greens, uniquely leafy greens, have a type of carbohydrate in them called sulfoquinovose, and it uniquely feeds a healthy type of E. coli in our gut. So people have heard of E. coli and they get scared because of food poisoning, like with beef and hamburgers, but there's many different strains. And so I'm sure you've looked into this, but the average person doesn't really think about this gut-brain connection, the gut-brain access. So the gut and the brain and the nervous system are uniquely connected, both from neural tissue point of view, but the bacteria in our gut secrete these metabolites and that communicates with the brain as well. So I'm just wondering if these leafy greens through the unique E. coli strain has a role. So, so much to think about. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's part of why I think historically, our ancestral lineage, we were consuming huge amount of green leafy material for millions of generations. And yes, 6 million years ago, we separated from the primates and began steadily eating more meat in our diet. But I think our health declines sharply when we, when we don't have that volume of greens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, mean, I hate to use the word moderation because that word's been used so much by my profession. But yeah, it's not about excluding one to the other. So it's good to get a variety of these foods. Mm -hmm. There's room for leafy greens. There's room for meat if people aren't opposed yeah. to eating meat. And you're not saying that at all. But yeah. And so... You know, this is pretty fascinating when you think about all, all this stuff. And then you mentioned the seaweeds. So that would be a good source of iodine, I guess. Yeah, good source of iodine, trace minerals. Many of us know that vitamins are important cofactors for many of our enzymes to facilitate the biochemical reactions of life. What many people may not realize is in addition to the vitamin, you need the mineral to also facilitate that biochemical step. And unfortunately for foods grown in North America and in Europe and much of the world, 
the quality of the soil and available minerals in the soil is diminishing. So the mineral content of our meats and our vegetables is diminishing, which means that we are more at risk for iodine insufficiency. And, you know, and, and frankly, all of our minerals being insufficient. Yeah, I've done many, many food trackers with myself, and it's amazing how it's difficult to, and I mean, I eat pretty well, like I've, I'm probably, well, not probably, I know I'm above average for sure, but even then, I struggle. So minerals are, I think, really, really underappreciated, except for calcium, because that's gotten so much PR and all that type of thing. But there's a lot more trace minerals that we're, we're missing out on for sure. Correct. So is there any role for supplements? Not that I'm pushing supplements, but I'm just wondering. I certainly want people to know their vitamin D level Mm -hmm. and to have their vitamin D level optimized either through getting ultraviolet light on their skin and getting a tan or taking supplement use. I also want them to know their homocysteine level so they know if they would benefit from taking additional B vitamins to get the homocysteine in a target range. Beyond that, there may be, depending on the person's history, I may want to investigate their B vitamin levels, vitamin C or vitamin A level, and give some supplements to address any deficiencies that I see based on the history or the exam or testing. So, yeah, that makes sense. And speaking of supplements, when you talk about the, I don't know if you want to talk about it or if we're giving anything away, but I'm curious to know how this would work with like a vegan, like what are some uh, vegetarian diet, what are some kind of big two or three kind of differences? So if a person's going to be a vegan, now I'm really concerned about their B vitamin levels and their homocysteine. They're going to be certainly at much higher risk for being low in B12. They'll be at higher risk for being low in iodine and trace minerals. They will be at higher risk for being low in protein. And they will be at higher risk for being low in omega-3 fatty acids. So I would be thinking about all those things and probably having targeted supplements based on you know my exam. You can get a, a, a lot of hints from this, from doing a nutritional physical exam and potentially some targeted lab testing. Okay. And I'm just thinking about choline because I know choline would be hugely important for myelin yes. health. And the best sources are for sure are things like eggs and liver. Eggs but and li- yeah. There, yeah, but there is, I guess, lecithin as well, a supplement. It, and you could use phosphatidylcholine. There's a product that we use with the phosphatidylcholine, which I actually am very fond of. Derived from soy, I guess, or sunflower. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that would fit with them. And I just wanted to kind of backtrack very briefly. So this protocol, like you were saying, everyone is using it for a lot of different reasons and finding benefit because you're just nourishing the fundamental aspects of your biology, the myelin, the neurons, the mitochondria. I mean, to you, it it, it applied specifically to a form of MS. Would you say that it would have benefit with other autoimmune diseases? Yeah. So in the VA, the Veteran Affairs Hospital that I worked at, we ran a clinic, the Therapeutic Lifestyle Clinic, where I used these principles. And we had people being referred to us with rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus, fibromyalgia, severe allergy, asthma, neuropathic pain. And consistently, we found it to be very, very helpful for reducing pain, improving blood pressure, improving blood sugar, and reducing disease activity. 
we're often able to reduce medication after medication, and sometimes we're able to eliminate medications entirely. Yeah, and that's to me, the proof is in the pudding, as they say. And I know a lot of maybe not naysayers, but people will say, oh, you're just displacing maybe poor quality food and just bringing in healthy eating principles. But I think it's much more nuanced than that. I just wondered if you had, when you think about the low-fat vegetarian diet and some of the foods you cut out like dairy, grains, and legumes, even though people think it's controversial, there's evidence that these things are really hard on the gut. Nobody likes the word leaky gut. They lose their mind when you say that. But if you put in gut barrier dysfunction into PubMed or something, you'll get like 11,000 returns. So are you, was I kind of well, reading into things? Or do you think there's a role for gut inflammation and maybe some gut barrier dysfunction in all of this? Yes. And there's lots of research now. And you can put in intestinal permeability, leaky gut, mm-hmm. and your disease of interest. And you'd probably find that there's evidence. So in my case, in MS, plenty of papers now showing increased intestinal permeability or leaky gut with multiple sclerosis patients. And that's probably true for most autoimmune dysfunction. So definitely, it is an issue. Although, again, I want to point out to the listeners, as much as I love the paleo diet, going grain-free, legume-free, dairy-free was not enough to stop my decline. And part of that may have been that I was already so very ill that I needed a much more aggressive approach. That's interesting because, yeah, I'm just wondering why, yeah, the the aggressive approach is meaning more getting rid of more of those probably known allergens and, and irritants. Like well, eggs, one of the top allergens for sure. So I took out the eggs. That was probably very important. I ramped up the greens. I added liver once a week. And when I structured my paleo diet in a much more specific way with a little less meat, more vegetables, in that very specific pattern that I discussed, mm-hmm. it was shocking how, how rapidly my health status changed. Yeah. And so would there be a variability for different people? Is that part of the protocol? Yes. Or so in the, pro- in the protocol... I provide guidance as to where people could start, you know, at level one, and who would be likely to want to advance to level two, who would benefit from the more restrictive diet, the walls elimination diet, why you might think about the benefits of uh, ketosis, and the benefits of doing ketosis for some people, or intermittent ketosis to improve metabolic switching, why that's helpful for many of us, particularly if you want to youth it, look and feel about 10 to 15 years younger. The nutritional ketosis. Well, nutritional ketosis, and and that's sort of a low-level ketosis that most of us will begin to be in after 12 hours of not eating. Occasionally, it takes as long as 16. Or you can get into ketosis from two hours of intense physical activity, such as, you know, running 10 miles or jogging 10 miles, that would get you in ketosis. And our again, our ancestral mothers and fathers 20,000 years ago were in ketosis often by virtue of physical activity, and then often by virtue of there being a lull in available food or you know, uh, having winter come by. 
Yeah. And so I think people forget that. And I think it's one of the drawbacks of kind of modern society. We're constantly eating and we're always in this, it's considered a fed state when you're in that post eating or post prandial phase where you're not tapping into those fat stores, but just a lot of different beneficial things happen, which is beyond the scope of this, but you know, cell repair happens and you're, you clear out debris, the cells take out the garbage, if you will. There's a lot of amazing things that happen. And there's a lot of amazing research looking into, you know, cognition, Alzheimer's, where ketones are beneficial in terms of being a fuel source, et cetera. So lots coming down the pipe, I guess. Yes. So I think you have a revision coming out. Is that right? I have a revision coming out, the revised and expanded the Walls Protocol. That will be out March 17th. Okay. And not to put you on the spot, is there a teaser or two that you can get people to? Yeah. So I provide a lot more information on metabolic switching. I still think being in ketosis does great things for the brain. It's a super fuel. But rather than be in continuous ketosis, we do much better when we go switch between ketosis in either a somewhat higher protein diet or, you know, the walls level one or level two. I have a longer conversation about ketosis, metabolic switching, and the many ways that we could experience that. And we have a longer conversation about the science of behavior change how to help people set up themselves so they can be far more successful with making changes to their health behaviors. Which is huge because as a dietitian, I mean, everything is, people always think it's just the list or the meal plan, but it really is boiling down to behavior. So that component sounds like it's uh, indispensable. You know, absolutely, because it's so hard for all of us biologically to give up today's pleasures for tomorrow's benefits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're not good at that. <laughs> no, we're, biologically, because, we're not good at Yeah, no, we had to eat to survive. And now it's like to tell people not to eat, that all the stuff that's around us is really going against our hard wiring. It's, so it's, Correct. in a sense, abnormal to to not eat when there's, you know, a when, when restaurant every corner. Uh, delicious food everywhere. It's like telling you to not have sex again ever. That's not very popular advice either. Yeah, for so sure. So we need to help people understand why behavior change is so difficult and how to set themselves up for much greater success. So I, I have a much better discussion for that. So that's great. So you said that comes out on March 17th? Yes. Uh, The book. So that's great. So I think that was a really good overview of your work, your journey, and how people could benefit from these principles, regardless of what a person's health struggle is, because it's, you know, you're studying, starting with the foundational aspects, like improving cellular energy. So I want to thank you for your time. And I just also want to point the listeners in the right direction. So where can we find you and your amazing work? So find me at terrywalls.com, T-E-R-R-Y, walls, W-A-H-L-S.com, and pick up our research papers at terrywalls.com forward slash research papers. You also get to see a video of the amazing gate changes that people can achieve. And you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter at Terry Walls, and on Instagram at Dr. Terry Walls, that's D-R-T-E-R-R-Y. W-A-H-L-S. 
Fantastic. So again, thank you for taking time out of your busy day. I really enjoyed it and I know everyone else will as well. Thank you so much. Hit subscribe and get ready to expand your nutritional world, your perspective, and gain confidence in a way that you didn't know you could. And be sure to check out my website, DougCookRD.com.